is the Doing Diversity in Writing podcast, the show where we as authors explore the better practices of writing inclusively, whether that be in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, class, sexuality, ability, and so on. Why are we here? To bring more depth and breadth to the characters in our fiction and represent them in the best way possible. My name is Bethany A. Tucker, and with me each week is my co-host, Marielle S. Smith. Ready? Let's dive in. Hey, Marielle. So here we are, not quite lined up with the lunar seasons, but today we are wrapping up our season two of Doing Diversity in Writing by answering some questions. Do you remember when we were wondering if we would ever finish season one? Yes. (laughs) Please don't (laughs) remind me of that. Yes. That felt so... At one that that felt impossible to do at, at one point. So I, I can't really believe that we actually made it through a second season. We did. We totally did. Yeah. All right. So we've been talking for the last 11 episodes, now 12 in this one, about race and ethnicity. And I, I was going to ask you, would you mind taking a few minutes and just give us some of the biggest takeaways you've had while we worked through these topics? I'll just remind everyone listening what some of them have been in episode one of this season. We talked about the mechanics, the actual application of writing skin tone, and we've interviewed some insightful and truly thoughtful authors such as Antoine Bendeli and Claire Sager. And we were also fortunate to engage with two lovely professionals who are supporting our communities to do what we do better, which was uh, which were Professor Grace L. Dillon, who coined the term Indigenous Futurisms, and Aaron Old, CEO of Salt and Sage, who talked about sensitivity reading with us. Yes. So just thinking, like, we also had this episode on how to name your fictional characters. And our last episode, of course, was on how to write um, interracial or intercultural characters and relationships. But takeaways, let me, let me think. Um, I have to say that one of the most practical things that stood out to me was when Claire Sager told us how she rolls the dice when making decisions about a character's gender, when it isn't important for the plot. It's so simple, yet I never thought of that, and I will definitely be using that in my own writing, extending gender to include all those other identity markers we've been talking about, including race and ethnicity. It's like, if it doesn't matter for for your plot, just roll the dice, right? Instead of going with the standard option, just roll the dice. And as we talked about in the episode as well, like if you have your uh, D&D dice, for example, mm-hmm. you can go all the way, right? Get those D20s out. Yeah. So another thing that really hit me once again is when we talked about Encanto, receiving quite a wide range of critique by Colombian thinkers, artists, activists, and so on. And while I know this is the case, and we've talked about the fact that you'll never be able to make everyone happy, it kind of hit it home for me again that that should never be our goal because then we're like doomed to fail. Our goal should be to do the best we can with the resources and knowledge that is available to us. Our goal should never be to make everyone from a particular community that we're writing about exceedingly happy with a representation because that's just not going to happen. So the goal, we need to rethink that goal if that's what we have in mind. Yeah. Agreed. So today we're going to wrap up a few short topics and loose ends as well as questions. This is by far not the last time we will talk about race and ethnicity, but we are going to keep moving because writing diversity is such a wide spectrum and all identity markers are important. Yeah, but that said, we do have plans to keep circling back to it and do additional episodes on issues of writing race and ethnicity, especially in relation to other identity markers like gender, sexuality, all of those. So it's a work in progress. That's why this is a podcast. And we are, um, we're, we're going to continue to roll with the flow. And we are uh, happy that people send us our questions and that helps inform what we're doing. Anyway, yeah. the topic of today's, uh, one of today's wrap-up questions can be a bit touchy. It started when we noticed variations of two questions showing up online among writers frequently. So question one is, 
can I write racial slurs in my book if it would be historically accurate? Yeah, and question two, so that too was stated in a variety of ways, can be summed up as how much should I remind everyone about the racial history, the good and the bad of my character? Yeah. So let's circle back to question two and stick with question one. We'll circle back to question two in a moment. Stick with question one. Early on in season one, we actually address some options we have as writers for dealing with situations where racial slurs may appear. So to review real quick, we have a few ways to handle this. One, allow the characters who would naturally use the slur to use it because that is realistic. This is often the stance taken by those who don't want to whitewash out the real pain of history. Yes, and conversely, the argument against this stance is that it perpetuates the hurt, could teach new people the slur, etc. Which they have a point. When I was a child, I was reading a memoir about World War II, the war in the Pacific, and I was recounting some of what I was learning to someone and used a negative name for Japanese people because I'd read that name in the book and it had not been marked marked in the readings as pejorative, so I didn't realize it was a negative term. Yeah, that has happened to me as well, but then with a slur for German people. And it can be very obvious, which of course depends on your writing. But yes, in some cases, context may elude the reader. And that's especially the case when it comes to age. Like for me as well, it was when I was younger. So I didn't have the knowledge yet or the background yet um, to understand that this was not a positive term or a, a neutral term. So it's a real concern we can have as authors, especially if the term is less commonly acknowledged as wrong or isn't really in use anymore. Yeah, my stance is that the situation and the setting of the story matters when making this decision and the age group at at which the story is targeted matters. For example, the book I was reading was targeted towards grade schoolers. For example, anything targeted at children under eight, I'd be very hesitant to include a slur of in any fashion, unless the point of the story itself is to teach about how to deal with bullying, name calling, and the like, even then I would probably consult a childhood development expert and others to weigh in on that decision just to get it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a story can totally be told where the narrative itself condemns the use of the slur, even while realism is preserved for the sake of honesty. I think a midway stance we've seen some authors take is that writing the first and last letter and asterisk sent around to show disapproval. That's really something that I've seen happen. And I kind of like that. I like it, especially for anything that's middle grade or YA. I would say basically that's what I like it for. Or when it's marketed towards an audience who is expected to be protected as they read, for example, some of the cozy or very light uh, genres where people are basically Mm. reading it just as a form of escapism and they don't expect anything disturbing. Yeah. But even then, you probably wouldn't use a slur in those kind of books to start with. Yes, I I do. I once had a client who wrote a book which had a lot of the N-word Mm-hmm. which completely fitted the time it was set in. And, and the, the, the narrative itself was very critical towards people using the N-word. But even though this was a, uh, an adult, like it was a literary novel, it was like it had an adult audience, they still didn't feel comfortable using like the N-word spelled out. So they yeah. opted for like using the asterisks um, and they worked, right? Yeah, there isn't one answer to this question. No, this is just something that like we both, yeah, see see doing and and I think it works well. So there's a big difference. I just want to point that out between yelling a name at someone yourself and acknowledging that such a negative or cruel term has been used um, or is still being used depending on the context that you're writing about and the specific stir that you're writing about. This might be very Dutch or maybe European of me, but I never really got the American hesitancy to even say certain words when discussing why they shouldn't be used. I don't really see how that is helpful. Um, And we don't do that in the Netherlands. We just use the word and the context will explain that I see your face. 
it's funny. Um, the context, <laughs> like it's like you cannot fathom it. Um, the context will explain why we are using that particular word in that context. But I guess it explains why I would never say you can't use slurs, racial or otherwise in your work, right? As long as it's being made clear that you're not perpetuating any thoughts or beliefs that are racist, ableist, homophobic, transphobic, misogynist, and so on, I think you're good to go. I'm smiling because even though I believe you can't criticize something you can't acknowledge and say, in the context of being American and the people I'm around, I often have to be careful because it's a different context. Anyway, in my writing, my bad guys use bad words and they also die in the end most of the time or sincerely change their ways. So that's my take on it. <laughs> well, to be fair, your bad guys are like really bad guys. Yeah, most of the time. So and that's why they use deplorable names for others somewhat regularly. Uh, it's in my world building. It fits my genre. And this is why I always go back when people raise this question to asking for context and audience. If I wasn't writing fantasy, I'd probably be consulting with communities involved um, if I was pulling from any sort of like current history outside of my own experience. And that's where I fall on it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So if we have to summarize our answer, rule of thumb, BH appropriate, whatever that means where you're at in the world that is not the same in, in all cultures. Always consider context and audience. Know there is an option to use slurs without writing them out to protect yourself against accidentally endorsing their use. And always keep it real and grounded in the world that's being built. Is that where we land on this question? That, that really sums it up for me. So moving to the other issue you brought up, that of acknowledging racial history of our characters, I'm going to refer back to what we said about Encanto and how the writers and crew of that story referred to the violence that happened in Colombia um, in a very understated way. I thought it was well done to have acknowledgement. It did shape the story in ways I won't spoil for you in case you haven't seen Encanto yet, but or haven't listened to our episode about it. But even though it was this crucial moment in history, the history of the country where it was set and the history of the family, the filmmakers didn't bemoan it, focus on it or dwell. The, the present was the front and center of the story. Yes, and the same was done in the first season of Bridgerton, which we discussed during season one. I think that was episode five. Yeah, that one. Okay. Good, but you know, that won't work for every story though. No, it won't. It might work for more than you think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, I just want to say, like, I, I think we've said this before as well, but definitely bears repeating. We should not reduce racial and ethnic minority characters to painful past histories. That's painful past histories. How painful histories or painful pasts. All characters are first and foremost, when well written, people, or like maybe not people, but I'm thinking like you know animated films or aliens or like people sh people should cover aliens i mean thor and nebula and all the others from the mcu are definitely people they're just not human okay so sentient entities i'm gonna go with that right characters okay. are self-aware entities first and foremost and when we represent someone whoever they are they have the right to be themselves as individuals first and representations of a history second or even third, depending on how important it is to them and their story. And in stories where it isn't necessarily possible, I'd check twice. Um, see if you as an author are walking into a realm of storytelling that should be handled by authors who can speak from their own communities, AKA like an own voices story. There really are so many stories that can be told. Like we don't have to tell every story we run across ourselves. Which brings me actually to another question, one that ended up in our inbox two weeks ago. The question actually addresses two topics we'd like to discuss, especially since the first one is something that we've touched upon here and there. So here's the first part of what the, of what the author wrote to us. And this is me quoting. While obviously we should be writing stories with well-rounded, diverse characters, it's not appropriate for white authors to write POV characters of other cultures because it's not appropriate for us to be profiting off their stories when hashtag own voices stories are so underrepresented. Hmm. So I'll admit I had a visceral reaction to this part of the email. 
And my first reaction was, no, anyone can write uh, POV characters of any race or culture. I've done this. I've coached people who've done this. Um, so this idea that, you know, white authors, it's inappropriate for them to write POV characters of other cultures. This wasn't helpful gatekeeping for me. Um, the, the how the writing is done, the focal point of the story, the editing, the framing, all of that influences it and, and could change what's appropriate or not appropriate. There's a difference between writing a POV character and writing a, a, a POV character that's not like you and writing an own voices story for someone who's not like you. I agree. And I would never say that we can't write POV characters who aren't like us. Like we do this all the time, as we've talked about. They might not be racially or ethnically different to us, but they will be different from us in whatever way. And if we want to do that well, we need to honor and respect that and research the hell out of it. We do. And we've talked about this before as well, when we're considering writing a more primary character as part of a minority that we don't belong to, whether that's racial, ethnic, sexual, religious, etc., we do need to ask ourselves why we want to write this specific character with this specific identity marker, set of identity markers. And to be honest, that's, that's an answer we can only give ourselves. Yeah. And like we discussed in an early episode as well, the content of the story matters in this respect as well. Like writing a story about someone with a different race or ethnicity than you, while the story is about them having a different race or ethnicity that gets a pretty hard no for me, right? That's the own voices stories that you are talking about, right? Yes. So like I wouldn't write the film Roots or Django Unchained. That that to me is not a story that I need to tell, but I will include, you know, characters from those minority groups in my writing. Yeah. So writing a story about something else entirely and simply assigning your characters as this or that race or ethnicity because you can and because it adds representations for me that's something else altogether right and that's where those questions you've just mentioned come in like if that's what you're doing yeah then of course start asking yourself okay so why do i want this character to be of this race or ethnicity yeah like allowing we've talked about this like spider-man um in the mcu his friend group is diverse, more diverse than it used to be in some of the other films. And the question is, why not? They, it's yes. New York. Everybody of everything is in New York. Yeah, so if your answer is, well, why not? Because they could be anything. For me, that's a perfectly legit answer. Actually, if you don't have diversity and you're writing a story in New York, I have to ask if you're making New York up. Like, it's not a real New York unless it's diverse. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, but that's, that's, yeah. All right. So where are yeah. we? I kind of went on a tangent there about New York. <laughs> it just cracks me up. New York is so diverse. All right. So yeah. there's a second part to this question. Can you give it to us? Yes. So you mean the actual question, because that was just the introduction. So here's the, here's the actual question or set of questions, I should say. What about collaboratively written stories? Would it be acceptable for a white author to work with a POC author? So person of color to tell the story of a POC character or would that simply be a white person trying to assuage their guilt and if that is acceptable at what level of collaboration does it become so in the range of a person of color signing off and putting their name on something to one person writing the story that the other created to 50-50 split of work to a person of color or POC author writing an original story with original characters in a shared world. Okay, that's a really wide range of ideas and options. Yeah, any chance you want to start answering that? I'll give it a I'll give it a start. I think it's acceptable for a white author to work with a person of color author to tell the story of a person of color character. Um, I, I actually have a potential project in the works, which would be exactly that. And I would also say it depends very much on the dynamic between the two authors. I wouldn't say it's simply a white person trying to assuage their guilt or assuage their guilt, because 
we don't know what's going on in that relationship. It really does depend on the writers in this case, both writers. I don't want to project onto a working relationship as an outsider motivations on whoever's doing this. Maybe these two writers are family. Maybe they're married or colleagues who just really love working together and then they end up on a story and they want to tell it and they want to tell it together. We all have different reasons to tackle, well, any creative project really and scrutinizing how other authors choose to collaborate when we don't know them. I don't want to police that. I don't Uh think it's helpful to the industry. I don't think it's helpful representation. I don't know if we're fully answering the question here, if they're asking what's acceptable or what we would suggest people doing. Well, again, I would say that this is a question, all of these questions asks for reflexivity and a healthy dose of self-awareness. Yes. Right, like why do you want to be involved with this project? Is it to assuage some kind of white guilt? If so, then don't do it. That I would agree with. Uh, Writing a book just to assuage guilt is probably not a good reason for a project. I, I suppose I could think of a good reason, but I would say rule of thumb, probably not a good reason for a project, especially in this arena. Yes, and as for the other questions, I think that too depends on the specific situation you're in, right? Different co-authors write together differently. Some bring in the exact same amount of work. Um, it can be, like for others, it can be 30, 70. It could be even less. I've heard of, I heard of 1090, right? Wow. And people distribute their royalties accordingly. Like I know this collaboration that they really work uh, on the world building together. Like they use each other as a sounding board. There's one author who does most of the writing because he writes faster. That works. Yeah. I mean, like I said, like they just split the royalties in mm-hmm. in a way that feels fair to their situation. So some co-authors write together, but only one person has their name on the cover for whatever reason that is. That's I've heard people do that. Of course, that doesn't mean they don't split their royalties 50-50 if that's how they divided those up which also depends on how much time each of them spent on the actual project. Yeah, so this is something that has to be discussed before the project gets started with the yes. authors written down. Written, as we said before, uh, contracts are useful. Yes. <laughs> Who's going to do which part of the jobs and what reward are you connecting to that? And of course, if a person of color author is joining your shared world and writes books by themselves within it, it makes all the sense that your own name would be on the books because it's part of the shared world that you created. That's pretty traditional in the publishing industry. Um, Sometimes writers work in a shared world and the person who made the world, their name isn't on it, but their brand's on it, which is another way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it, it makes all the sense in the world to just negotiate that, check around to see what people are doing, like how big is the world? And if your involvement really is minimal, like here's the story Bible for this universe, then you might want to brand it as part of that universe and you get part of the royalties for it, but then their book is on the cover. I've seen that done. So I've also talked to someone recently about someone who had to study legislation around intellectual property. And they reminded me that there is a difference between law and ethics. And I think this question got posed as an ethics question, but it actually gets into the law really quickly. And anytime we start to talk actual numbers and percentages, we are leaning towards the law. So keep that in mind. And remember, contracts can be enforced by courts. Yes. And I would say another thing you could take into consideration here that might otherwise not be taken into uh, any kind of consideration when you are uh, collaborating, when you are thinking of collaborating, is the difference between the physical and mental labor of writing. And then there's the emotional labor of writing from a particular perspective. So in this case, a POC perspective. So if you and your person of color collaborator decide you're going to reward that emotional labor on top of the physical and mental, 
you have to again consider with your collaborator how that is going to translate to your royalty split. I would agree. And I would say one thing you can, can take into consideration is the essentialness of having their voice in the story or their voice informing the story. If the story literally cannot be written without them, then the percentage should probably be higher. Yeah, you might want to reward that, yes, generously. Yes. I mean, if you yes. literally have no story without them, then uh, <laughs> you really do have to reward that at a different level. So yeah. here's a follow-up question, not from the email, but something that came up for me as we were preparing. Have you ever given up on a story because you decided it wasn't yours to tell? I, I have to say, not that I remember. What about you? I do have some unfinished things on my hard drive. One that there's only one that really fits the bill. It's about Irish mythology or based on Irish mythology. And even though I am Irish through my father and certainly raised, uh, I was certainly raised more American Irish. And this story was set in Ireland. And I didn't feel that I was completely informed to tell that story. I realized I was pulling from the mythology of Ireland through the lens of American Irish culture and not from Ireland, Irish culture still there. So I've put that on the back burner. If I ever spend time in Ireland, I may decide I'm confident enough to finish it. But for the moment, I don't feel ready. No, you want to immerse yourself into the culture a little bit first. There is a lot of romanticizing that American Irish people have done of Ireland. And I hear that we're kind of annoying when we go back to homeland, so to speak. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Having lived in Ireland and having seen how uh, at least Dubliners responded, actually, that no, everybody everywhere responded to that, to American tourists. Yeah, I can absolutely um I'm a yeah. little sensitive to it because I do want to embrace my Irish heritage, but I'm not sure Ireland, Ireland would embrace me back. So we'll see. So getting back to acknowledging racial history, <laughs> if the history of the character's ethnicity is going to have weight in the story, then yes, it's going to have to be acknowledged in most cases, if only tangentially. Not every story needs or even should be a social justice moment to make the reader confront something. I think the ideal road to walk is somewhere between erasing sub to something to create a fake idyllic past that never really existed by ignoring the realities and also just rolling in tragedy porn, which I've definitely seen done as well. Um, <laughs> yes. really bad, so... Yeah. A personal story to kind of frame this. I was out with my husband recently at the Okmogli Mountains National Park here in Macon, Georgia. And while we were walking in the woods all by ourselves, I kind of went off on a rant about how hunter-gatherer cultures were often used as a shorthand explanation for why Western Europeans felt justified in invading First Nations and taking over North and South America and Central America. This was all triggered by the historical plaque signs they leave up regularly around these parks to like tell you the history and it kind of set me off. I was pointing out like things like running water and flushing toilets existed in South America before England had such things. And honestly, I was really on a rant. And then I stopped and realized my husband was kind of tense. And I, I thanked him for letting me be a social justice warrior. And he didn't respond right away. He was kind of quiet. And then he said, you know, he was referring back to the last thing he said, you know, I made that joke a while back because I really do want to enjoy the quiet in the woods. I don't want to always be thinking about how awful Europeans are. And that just shut me up. I mean, the woods were beautiful. The flowers are coming out. The cherry trees are blooming. The air smelled nice. And I was missing all of that because I was just ranting. And I would have missed all of it if he hadn't stopped me and made me think about it. So I'm kind of glad he did. And taking this back to what we were talking about, I think we can do the same with our stories. We can end up focusing on the negatives or trying so trying extra hard to be upset and sorry and trying to correct things in the past. And we just miss the beautiful present, which is the only thing we can make even more beautiful or amazing or just as injustice. Sometimes we 
have to call out wrongs, but if that's all we're doing, we're just hurting ourselves and perhaps the people we want to be lifting up as well. I know as a pagan, I don't want to always be talking about witch burnings all the time. (laughs) That shit is depressing. I want to talk about how lovely it is to follow the seasons with a mindful practice or celebrate the cycle of the moons, get excited about buying a fresh batch of spices for cooking. That is magic. I don't don't want to be talking about witch burnings. (laughs) No, I agree. Like I don't, every time I burn a candle or, or or like do something like any kind of rituals I don't want to be first spending three hours sobbing about what happened then no um but yeah it's a balancing act right and and pulling that off being able to pull that off and doing that well that's what makes for great writing exactly hi everyone it's Mariella are you tired of getting in your own way and not having a sustainable writing practice then the 52 Weeks of Writing Author, Journal and Planner is for you. 52 Weeks of Writing makes you plan, track, reflect on and improve your progress and goals an entire year long. It gets you to unravel the truth about why you aren't where you want to be and it keeps you writing through weekly thought-provoking quotes and prompts. 52 Weeks of Writing brings together every lesson I have learned over the past few years as a writer and a writing coach. Wary as I am of comparisonitis and unhealthy competition, I designed this undated author journal and planner to help writers develop a practice that honors their own needs and desires. If you're ready to become the writer you were always meant to be, go to mswordsmith.nl slash journal and order your copy today. So we do have a few things also to address from our questionnaire. So thank you to everyone who wrote in and and answered that as we keep asking you to do at the end of every episode. A lot of of what came up, we're going to be looking at in future episodes. So if you're listening and we don't talk about what you wrote in about, that's because it's sitting in a file for a future episode and we are very grateful and we'll get to it. Yes, and if you haven't filled out a writer or reader questionnaire yet, or you have more thoughts, either fill them out or messages. We read everything and we love responding, even if it takes a while before we get to it. Yes. So if you're still waiting for a response, we are getting to it. It just, you know. All right. So the first thing I want to address is something that's come up for me with friends and also shut up, showed up in some of the questionnaires. And that's the portrayal in Western media of Asian men. They are, and I'm going to quote from our responder here, often relegated to the roles that are stereotypical or demeaning. So, Marielle, do you have any context from this, from our academic backgrounds? Well, to me, when I think about that, like this is very much linked to white supremacy, toxic masculinity, even patriarchy, as we understand it here in the West. Like our view of masculinity and what masculinity should be, what men should behave like, it is so rigid and anyone who doesn't adhere to it is automatically considered less than. And this can show up in different ways, all of which are aimed at proving that these men are weaker than what is a very toxic norm. They're not to be, so I'm I'm saying it's actually a double thing, right? It's both men who are not perceived as men are described and often portrayed in in, in terms of, of weakness, but it's also used, it's also a strategy used to make men who are kind of intimidating, you know, by representing them as weaker. That is how we ensure that they are not to be perceived as real men because they have certain characteristics that do not gel with how we are taught to view masculinity. Basically, this is historical political propaganda that took place that's that's absolutely what i'm talking about which took place in literature like in literature in fiction men from this cultural heritage in the english literary literary canon were written in this way because it was politically expedient at the time yes So this also goes along with the quote unquote smart Asian stereotype or the weak nerd stereotype, which has to be dying at this point. Um, I'm not sure it is, but I hope so. Yeah. 
I'm just going to throw Spider-Man at everybody. <laughs> Let him take care of that. All right. As someone who I mean, he is a nerd, the guy is a nerd, but he's not weak. Correct. That's why he's killing the stereotype. Yeah. All right. As someone who's lived in Asia, I would say one of the biggest issues that can happen is that Western Europeans and white Americans don't always recognize a multiplicity of masculinities outside of their own definitions of strength, power, and boundaries. Mm-hmm. When I lived abroad, I did experience a multiplicity and that just became part of my perception. There is a vice versa misunderstanding that takes place um, by different Asian character cultures of Europeans or Americans and their cultures. That's a whole nother podcast. That's not the point here, (laughs) because in this context, the power structure is with those funding the creation of these works of media in cultures where men of Asian descent often don't have a lot of power, aka in the US or Western Europe, where English is the dominant language. And they don't have access to seeing men like them, men who look like them in positions of leadership, advocacy, sexual admiration, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not only that, but as the comment uh, also said uh, to the questionnaire, culturally, like this weak Asian man stereotype, um, because it has become a trope, I'd say, has bled over into people's perception of reality. And this is precisely why representations matter. When not challenged and countered by sufficient numbers of opposite examples, as a society, we end up with large groups of people who behave in an emasculating way towards men of Asian descent because that's how we are taught to perceive them. And this is why art, literature, and film, fiction, it matters. It does shape our perception. Yeah. Uh, So I am excited to see examples, popular examples coming out in the last few years that are challenging this trope, and I'm hoping to see more. I, in my own reading, have enjoyed... um, Well, actually, let me back up. I've enjoyed enough Asian cinema over the years while abroad, and then because I chose to enjoy it when I came back, I'll admit that I'm not as aware of this trope because I, I can point to like so many strong Asian men characters that I know of. And then I realize, oh, that particular piece of media was made in Asia. Mm-hmm. But the last few years in the US, we have had some major films that created a new narrative. And I'm really mm-hmm. happy about that. Yeah, before I had you, like, I, want, I just wanted to say is that my ex-partner was a, um, a film major mm-hmm. and he had these moments that he was obsessed with a particular something. So it could be a particular director or whatever, um, could be a particular actor. So you don't want to know how many Korean films I've seen, for example, because <laughs> at one point it was just all he was watching. Right. So yeah, like if you actually like read the novels that originate in a particular culture or you read or you, you you watch the cinema the tv shows that originate and you know what well, that is actually becoming easier now than it used to be because these yes. things have become more accessible um, so yeah it, it's definitely that has changed my perspective as well because I like you I know so many Asian characters or I mean, a lot of Korean characters that are not stereotypical at all because I've seen the whole variety across all those different films, right? They may, might be stereotypical in Korea, but they're definitely not stereotypical for like Western media. No, because to me, like they countered mm-hmm. what I saw in like Hollywood productions. But when you say, because because you you were talking about we had some major films, right? That that recently that there are some major films that are sort of creating a new narrative. I'm just wondering, and I know we've talked about this film before, are you talking about films? Um, so this is the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like Shang, Shang-Chi and the Legends of the Ten Rings? Is that you remember the name. Right. Well, you <laughs> yes. only told me like 110 times. Yes, I'm also talking about Crazy Rich Asians, which I hear they have number two heading to production or in production now. I'm really excited. I have not watched that. You haven't watched but, okay. Crazy Rich Asians? Bef- you send me a link about the next season. And that was the first time I've heard about it. 
Okay. But clearly I missed something. Oh my gosh. All right. I'm sending you things. You have to watch this. Okay. I will. I rarely watch anything twice. I have seen this twice and I'm planning to see it for a third time. So just so you know. All right. But other examples besides Crazy Rich Agents, which was seminal because it had a it had this truly romantic male lead who was fully um, of, of Asian descent. So that, that was like a, a turning point in cinema or at least heralded it as. I don't know enough about cinema to say there never has been another one, but anyway, it was a blockbuster film. So going back further, Bruce Lee is also a very strong figure, not just in film, but also in Hollywood in general. And then I'm also being reminded of, I may say his name incorrectly, Churut Imwe, betrayed by Donnie Yen in Star Wars Rogue One. He's, uh, he's, he's blind and he fights with a stick, like a very long stick. I'm forgetting the exact term of it. But Star Wars. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I also don't know. The, like, I know the term, but not this second. Yeah. So there is a history of a select few men of Asian descent being really popular in martial arts films, but there are still not very many, almost no romantic leads in Western fiction who are Asian. I've read a few published in the last few years in the LGBTQ plus romance genre, and I do enjoy a lot of media from Asia, like I've said, but the English literary canon, the historical weight of that canon precludes Asian men as strong sexually attractive figures and successful bosses outside of their own countries of origin. So we literally, as we said, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings just got our first Asian superhero on the big screen. Unless I've missed one, but I'm pretty sure I haven't. No, and this is why uh, when we'll be discussing gender and sexuality in, in like future episodes, this is why we'll be including how race and ethnicity affects representations and perceptions of gender and sexuality. Because yeah. you can never take these two apart. Yeah, I keep having discussions with people about the multiplicity of like masculinity or femininity, but that's a whole nother topic. Yeah, and we will be talking about that. Yeah. So another thing that came up in a response uh, to one of our questionnaires was the criticism or the concern more it's more concern that an author may face no 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 let me i'm i'm lost in thought it's it's there was a concern about the criticism that an author may face when writing racially or ethnically diverse casts and this is a fear that we've seen come up and it is basically the fear that authors are afraid that people will criticize them for being too political for including a diverse cast, right? Or who see the author as making a political statement by including a diverse cast. So I'm either the perfect one to answer this question or the exact wrong person to answer this question. I'll say it like this. My family exists. My family is diverse. Our collective mere existence because of racial diversity and the social political dialogue around race is a political statement. Not having a diverse cast is a political statement. It's all a political statement. You really can't get away from it. I know, and it's just, let's not even go into the privilege of the term. I don't want to be political or I'm not political. Or, I'm not a political person. That there just is makes so me much laugh. privilege because saying you're not a political person is a political statement. So this is I, the thing, right? Yeah. I try to hold a lot of grace for some people who say that because people have been educated wrongly about that. But I also start laughing. <laughs> so yeah, yeah but, but the same, the same for me. Like, and I, I will say, like, I will say that's like a very political statement you just made. Mm -hmm. And I do, I do try to bring up the privilege, but it kind of depends on the context and the situation who I'm talking with, because not everybody is as um, open to have a discussion about that. And I've also learned over the years to pick my battles. 
sometimes you need to enjoy the wind in the trees and the flowers blooming. Exactly. So, but basically I think, and this, I think this is something that we would both agree on that there is absolutely nothing wrong with making political statements. And, like, and no. so this is like making, and so I'm talking about making explicit political statements, right? Because everything is actually a political statement. Can I point everyone back to Charles Dickens? His entire body of work is a political statement. The same with much of what was written by Mark Twain. Like fiction and political statements cannot be separated. Exactly. Which, which is why I'm always a little bit conflicted about Stephen King saying that we should not be like, pretend we're on a soapbox because I'm like so much writing not everything is explicitly political but maybe you don't have to stand in a box and yell so that the people can't enjoy your writing like that's the thing about Mark Twain and Charles Dickens is people genuinely enjoyed the writing they didn't feel like the preacher was yelling at them in church and that's why the statements got across and got heard because people actually wanted to spend time with the stories. So maybe that's the difference. Like if you are just telling tales that feel like shouting, that's not much fun to read. That's basically just writing a manifesto. Correct. And we can go read plenty of those. That's a different style of writing. Yeah. So right now I am, I'm actually, I'm reading a really good example of that, of, of that kind of balance like I'm reading Nora Phoenix's White House Man series. I, I know you've read some of her stuff, but I'm I'm not sure whether you're I haven't with read this. that series, but I've read multiple of her other series. Okay. This is the first series of her that I'm 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 reading. And I started on Thursday and I'm in and so we report this on a Monday and I'm in book four right now. So I think that's, that's fast quite a bit. That was my weekend. But the reason because this is the thing, like, I think Nora Phoenix, so, so she is a, a, a MM writer. She's an MM romance writer. That is not necessarily a genre that I read a lot in. Mm. And she's also, she also deals with different kind of kinks in the stories. Yes. And again, that is not something that I'm reading it for. But why I'm going through these books is that, so this is basically, like, I love the, the West Wing, right? So it really gives me this, this sense of being back in the White House. And I think she said something like, it's like the series is like, imagine that the West Wing and the American president had like a queer love baby, something like that. <laughs> the so, West Wing being a TV series for those who don't know. Yes, yes. So the thing is like, so the, the, the political arc that runs through the, the entire series Okay. And that has me hooked. And this book is filled with political statements. It's so explicit. And I love it, right? It's I'm also just... appropriate for the situation, the story. <laughs> yes, but that's my point, right? So the explicit political remarks and sort of like the, the, the bitch slapping of, of certain, certain people and, and communities, uh, like political communities, I, I, I just love it, right? Like I'm the perfect reader for that. So, so yeah, so for me, it's like, you because sometimes it can actually get you readers if you, if you yes. are political. Yeah, but, but, I'm, but my point is that she does it in such a way that it makes sense because her characters are all people who need to have that kind of nuance about certain communities and stuff like that. So Correct. that's why it's work. Like she's not so boxing. She just has care. Like she just has characters that would naturally like this. say this. Yes, and it, it's 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 very yeah. It's very connected to their backgrounds and the jobs they have, the jobs that they need to be doing in the White House. So yeah, so it really works organically for me. But I just that's like I just can't stop reading it. So that's saying something because that doesn't happen to me a lot. Um, no, it doesn't. No. So I, I, I do want to say, though, that there might actually there might be cases where racial or ethnic diversity may not show up naturally. And some authors, this is something that we've seen as well. Some authors are feeling stressed on how to try to find a way to include diversity when that's the case. I see that. And if racial I mean, not diversity- everybody is writing about New York. No, no, 
And if racial diversity is not naturally present in a setting and you as an author want to write and include racial diversity, then either finish the story that you're working on, publish it, and then write a new story, or leave the racial diversity out. That's okay. The thing is, there is racial diversity in so many settings. If you dig far enough, expand your racial diversity ping meter beyond Black, white, Asian, you can hit pay dirt surprisingly frequently. Yeah, like for example, I'm Scottish and Dutch. That is already, it's not the most ethnically diverse, but it is ethnically diverse. Yes, and at this point, you've also joined the expat culture. And believe me, that is also very different from people who never leave their hometown. Exactly. So what I'm hearing you say, and what I would say myself as well, actually, is that you you can't worry about the people who are going to make a fuss about a story being political or too political. Basically, yes. Not so long ago, I'll remind everyone, reading for women was a political statement. Writing books has often been a political statement. I literally did independent research on art and literature as political propaganda, and it doesn't stop. Listening to this podcast is a political statement because you're saying what you support or what you want in the world. And politics need not fall along party lines. Even if people are trying to fit into them during voting day, politics doesn't mean you're saying you're supporting one politics one political party or another politics is a civil society activity conversation yeah it is and i'm also thinking you were talking about the the writing books has often been a political statement and and that you were talking political propaganda it's like it's one of the first things that happen right when 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 governments are trying to counter something is that they burn the books or they ban the books and we're going through a whole wave of attempted book banning in the u.s right now yes so and the thing is like when i think of book burning i think of like the second world war and 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 hitler like going through like most of german culture and trying to erase it but this is still happening so you cannot tell me that books are not political because if they're if they're that harmless nobody cares right like nobody cares who reads them yeah so for those who say if you're an author and someone's criticizing you or coming to you and telling you that your work is political I would say that says a lot about them perhaps more about them than you if they don't like it then they're not your readers or at least not your readers yet They can find lots and lots of other books out there written by authors who are happy to keep writing the canon as it's been written, or even write new kinds of stuff that appeal to them. These kind of readers aren't going hungry for books. There are so many books out there, they can find something else to read. They just need to get used to not being the only kind of people who gets to decide what's on the menu. Because in most cases, the people who are complaining are those who have traditionally not had to see anything but what they wanted yes and meaning not see anything that's not like them in many cases yeah yeah so of course as certain types of characters become more common right which is what we're working towards at one point they won't be seen as political commentary anymore but the thing is that that commonness that is still something political And this is just a road that we as a society need to travel. And it's about the time we do. Yeah, exactly. It's okay to be political. If you can do it in a way that doesn't feel like you're yelling at everyone, even better. Yes, I would actually say it's, 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 that's my personal take. It's not okay not to be political. It's practically impossible if you really look at what it means to be political. Okay. Yeah. So we only have time for one more comment today, and we're going to end on a fun one. Here it is. How do I make my cast more diverse when my characters aren't human? I am going to pass this on to you because I've never, like, I have cats in my books and dogs as well, but mostly cats, of course, because I've never, because for those who don't know, I'm obsessed with cats, Um, but I've never written anything 
like any POV characters that aren't human. So your cats and dogs don't talk? Nope. Nope. They purr a lot. Okay. But that's it. Yeah. All right. So I'll take a stab at this question. I would say that race and ethnicity may not be how you bring most of your diversity into whatever you're writing if your characters are not human. But you can inform non-human characters in a sensitive manner. And you can choose to avoid animal and inanimate stereotype associations that have taken on negative connotations. Like, for example, one of the most obvious would be like monkeys and people of African descent. So if you have a talking monkey in your book, it's likely best not to code their speech as inner city or urban, just as a good starting rule of thumb. Yeah, somebody should have told Walt Disney that a few decades ago. Um, Well, someone's told them since. (laughs) Yes, luckily, yeah. If the story is populated by animals and it makes sense in the storyline, you could choose to explore animals from all over the world instead of the same set that you see every day or the same set that everybody else uses. I have seen the number of animals named in children literature go up, like different types of animals, which is exciting. It it helps... uh, people care about what happens to say rainforests because they now have a favorite animal character that lives in that rainforest or coral reefs like finding nemo talked about coral reefs and now people know more about them Um, this expands the world that children care about just naturally yeah and it can also make the story more accessible perhaps you know when it's translated or if read by someone in another country if they find animals they know in the book like it's it's not them but it's familiar. Yeah. I would also say non-human characters can still be coded one way or the other, but they don't have to be. They can be very neutral, especially what's on the page and not in film. When voice actors often code something in terms of accent or gender, they just have to because as actors, they exist and can be seen and heard. I'm thinking of Winnie the Pooh here. I can't remember the article, but some years back, I read that Kanga and Roo, the mother kangaroo and her baby, was a show of diversity at the time that the show was showing because it was a warm and loving rendering of a community accepting a single mother and her child without question. Just totally without question. Finding Nemo also that I just mentioned, the Pixar film put a single father front and center of its story and included a neurodivergent significant secondary character. And these are all non-human characters that have done diversity really well. Yeah, I, I think the point here is that diversity isn't just a race and ethnicity issue as well. Like there are so many other ways to be diverse. Exactly. So we've tackled race and ethnicity as a season um, first because it's front and center of the question, much like this last question kind of pointed out. Most people are thinking of race and ethnicity when they think of diversity but as we keep saying it's so much more than that yes so i guess this is when we are going to tell everyone about what's coming next i think we have to considering what time it is (laughs) all right so we're going to make a few changes for the next set of episodes we're moving to one episode a month for the moment which will be showing up in your podcast feeds on the first of each month. We want to keep the quality of our episodes high, and we also want to write the book that we've been talking about from the start. Yeah, but we realized that we can't do both at the same time. So we are reallocating our time, hence the change. Yeah, just to be clear, we can't do four episodes a month and write the book so you're getting one episode a month but it'll be a really good episode that's what we're aiming for anyway we're going to do it i'm speaking that out into the universe (laughs) all right so we're going to now move on into some episodes around gender and sexuality which is our second most requested topic which is why it's kind of second on our list to start working on our first episode on this will air on the first of may If you have any particular questions or things you would like us to cover, as always, please write us at diversityinwriting at gmail.com or leave us a comment or DM us on Facebook, etc. We are reachable. Yep, that we are. All right, see everyone later. Bye.
joining us. Music for this show was written and produced by Eric Mills. If you found this episode helpful, please rate and review on your favorite podcast app and spread the word so other writers can find us too. To get our Doing Diversity in Writing Toolkit, which includes all bonus material from season one, go to representationmatters.art. That's dot A-R-T. Here you will also find our episode show notes. Happy writing and see you next episode.